Well, I've got good news for everyone. There is a place of faith where people can believe what their conscience calls them to believe, a place of hope that accepts both the responsibilities and the possibilities of humankind, and a place of love where all people are accepted for who they are, who they were created to be. Of course, I'm talking about here, this place. But not so much this place as in this building, but our Unitarian Universalist movement, as I like to call it. A movement that nurtures my spirit, and to borrow a phrase from the poem, sustains me on the inside when all else falls away. But I'm uncomfortable standing on a street corner and shouting out this good news to all who might hear it, including some who might desperately need it. Now, we've all seen people with those sandwich signboards that walk up and down the street that say, like, repent or go to hell, those kinds of things. So I guess, I guess they're trying to scare people into their pews. Now, if I were so inclined, I'm not, but if I were so inclined, I would walk up and down a busy street with one of those sandwich signs, and on one side I'd have the universalist message. Don't worry, you're going to heaven. And on the other side, I put the Unitarian message. God doesn't make junk. You're just fine. Of course, if people saw that, they might think, wow, a church that says I don't need to go to church. Well, it's true. Uh, You don't need to go to church to be a good person. But something brings us here. Let's talk about that. The truth is, though, that that though we lack the leverage that the fear mongers have, we have much more to offer. The affirmation of inherent worth and dignity, the responsible search for truth and meaning, the encouragement of spiritual growth, to name three of them. Generally speaking, though, we are not the kind of people who would tap a stranger on the shoulder and say, let me tell you my good news. I wonder, though, if in our enthusiasm for reticence, We sometimes go too far. We choose to err on the side of privacy and leaving people alone. I get that. I like that. But I believe we are so afraid that someone might be offended by our even talking about our faith that we say nothing. And we deny our good news to people who want what we have and don't even know we exist. Now, there are many reasons why we are hesitant to evangelize, starting with our objection to the idea of evangelizing. (laughs) We are so determined that each person find his or her own path that we don't even leave breadcrumbs for those who might actually want to follow ours. It's been said by others, I think there's some truth to this, that we only want newcomers who are smart enough to get here by themselves. That means they passed the first test. (laughs) I think there's something else going on here. Though we say we value our differences, we are not exempt from the very human condition of wanting to be around people like ourselves. That's human. We want to grow our movement on the one hand, but only if we could add people who think and look like we do. One speaker I heard at another UU congregation said, of course we value diversity here. We have both socialists and communists. 
It's been said that a diverse UU congregation is one with at least three different colors of Priuses in its driveways. <laughs> the question I have for all of us is whether we are open and welcoming to those who share the liberal religious values that have shaped our movement for nearly 500 years, but who may not fit into the social and political culture of our particular congregations. Are we willing to adapt the culture of our congregation to welcome newcomers who share our faith, but not necessarily the dominant culture that they're walking into? Now, we know what the political liberal tradition is, but what is this thing I keep calling the liberal religious tradition that I refer to? All right? The two traditions overlap, but there is a difference. If I polled this congregation on the issues of the day, war, abortion, gun control, death penalty, global warming, most of us would agree on most of the issues. But we know, too, that on any one of those issues, we are not of one unanimous opinion, and each issue might produce a different majority. We know what it's like to be a religious minority in the community, but we're less aware of what it is like for those who might feel like they are a minority in our own congregations. This may disappoint you, but we are not the only progressive thinkers who attend church. The United Methodists, the Episcopalians, Presbyterian Church USA officially are pro-choice and against the death penalty. When it comes to helping the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed, our strongest allies often are the Catholics, even though we have profound differences with them on other issues. There is within the evangelical movement a growing call for stewardship of the environment that rivals our ministry for the earth. So we all get that each other's spiritual, personal spiritual path does not represent a creed that others must affirm. We understand that. Our personal politics is no different. One of our liberal religious values is social justice, but that's not the same thing as partisan politics. We are engaged, like all religions, in the struggle to provide food to the hungry and shelter to the homeless and comfort to the afflicted. But as religious liberals, we are engaged, too, in our culture, in the issues of our time, and that includes the full inclusion of the GLBT community in our larger society, justice for immigrants, and the conservation of our environment. The principles of religious liberalism include the affirmation of one's own conscience and moral decision-making, in contrast to those who see organized religion as an instrument of conformity. Religious liberals embrace continuing revelation, we do not limit ourselves to ancient prophets or texts. Rather, we embrace the possibility that evolution and the advance of knowledge may continue to inform our understanding of the ultimate reality. We recognize the capacity of human beings to choose between good and evil. Thus, we accept that we are both responsible for our problems and empowered by the gifts with which we have been created, whether by God or by nature, to create the beloved community in our time with our hands. 
We also recognize that the limitations inherent in the human condition preclude any group from claiming to have exclusive knowledge of truth. And that includes us, by the way. Women and men of goodwill who apply these liberal religious principles to their political values may come out on opposite sides of the issue. Regardless of what I say as a minister or even what a majority of members may believe, you do not have to leave your beliefs behind to join those of us who have chosen the path of Unitarian Universalism. When you enter a UU sanctuary, you don't have to check your integrity at the door. And that's one of the many messages of good news of Unitarian Universalism. All right, let's say that we're willing, we're even excited to share this good news with others. This is when you ask the question, so then what do I say? What am I supposed to tell them? Right? This brings up the proverbial elevator speech. If you just had a few seconds between floors, how would you describe Unitarian Universalism? Let me say for the record, this has never, ever happened to me. <laughs> I have never, ever heard it of happening any, anywhere else. But we spend a lot of time preparing for that moment, don't we? <laughs> yeah, there's some millennial movement in our, our movement, too. You know this is a serious problem, though, when we make so many jokes about our inability to describe our faith, to describe our movement, or to reduce it to a bumper sticker. Thus, what do you get when you cross a UU with a Jehovah's Witness? Someone who knocks on your door for no apparent reason. <laughs> How does a hate group get rid of a UU who has just moved into the neighborhood? They burn a question mark on his lawn. All right. Now these are oldies but goodies. So I bet some of you have heard these before. Right? You know, we have an official joke book. We may be the only denomination with an official joke book. If you're really in an elevator or in some other situation where you have only a few seconds there's nothing wrong with refusing to answer. That's okay. What you can say is, all I can say now is that I have found a very good home for my faith and I would love to tell you more about it when we have some more time. Because the person who really wants to know will ask you and give you an opportunity. And the person who doesn't ask you was just filling time in the elevator and probably doesn't care. But the person who cares will ask you and give you time. So don't struggle with trying to reduce everything to what you can say between three and four. If you choose a, to offer a more substantive answer, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. We may look to our tradition for answers to questions about our identity. In 1553, Sebastian Castillo wrote a letter to John Calvin arguing for freedom of religion in which he wrote, I must be saved by my own faith, not that of another. That's as good an elevator speech as you're going to get. What do you use believe? I must be saved by my own faith, not that of another. Okay. A few centuries later, Beatrix Potter, author, illustrator of Peter Rabbit, who was herself a third-generation Unitarian, explained her faith this way. Believe there is a great power silently working all things for good. Behave yourself, never mind the rest. That's, that works. Of course, our pamphlets 
our websites, YouTube videos, good sources of information about our movement for newcomers and longer-term members alike. Still, our movement is not built on a foundation of documents, whether sacred texts or holy creeds. Our movement is built on the stories of real people, people like Castillo and Potter. We are a history of people who have, a, who have compelling and inspiring stories to tell. Over 300 years ago, the first Unitarian bishop, Francis David, wrote, We need not think alike to love alike. There's another great elevator speech. What do you use believe? We need not think alike to love alike. And then stop talking. You've said it. During the early years of the Reformation, people were killing each other by the tens of thousands over questions like, is the presence of Christ in the Eucharist real or symbolic? David argued that we don't have to come to agreement on these kinds of questions to love one another, to come together in community, to encourage one another, to care for one another, to help each other to be better parents and partners and citizens. Yet for that belief, David eventually was thrown in prison where he died alone with the faith whose legacy we now are charged with continuing. 200 years ago, the father of universalism in America, John Murray, encouraged us to, quote, take to the highways and byways and give others not hell but hope, end quote. Murray had been a Methodist preacher in England when he converted to universalism, the doctrine that all souls will be united with God. But this good news did not spare him from life's realities. His wife and child died of illness. In despair, he sailed for America in 1770 to start a new life, and he did. Today we would call that a geographic cure. And we would never say, do that, but it worked for him. Today, he is just as famous for being the husband of Judith Sargent Murray, a successful social activist, often called America's first feminist. She wrote, On the Equality of the Sexes, in 1793. A little over 100 years ago, Olympia Brown, the first woman ever ordained at the denominational level, and I'll be honest, every denomination claims to ordain the first woman. We have a good claim. She's one of them, challenged the patriarchy of our own movement. She wanted to become a minister at a time when such things were not done. She was rejected by the Unitarian Seminary at Meadville, but she was accepted and merely tolerated at the Universalist Seminary at St. Lawrence. She persevered and graduated in 1863. Of course, other things were happening in the country in 1863, and that's why she might have been able to sort of go under the radar, to use a very modern term. These ancestors in faith show us by example that our lives are ours to live, that we must conform only to our conscience. But as Emerson would remind us, they were mere mortals like us. They did not accomplish anything beyond the grasp of anyone here. Which brings me to my final point. Ultimately, the good news of Unitarian Universalism is you. To use two very non-spiritual words, each person here, because I remember no one said they were a first-time visitor, right? Everybody's come back, right? So every person here is a success story in recruitment and retention. You may not want to think of it that way, but you are. So ask what brought you back 
That's the good news of Unitarian Universalism. When others want to hear about our faith, tell them your story. There will be as many variations as there are storytellers, but they will have things in common. Now, I'm a come-outer, as they say. I was raised a United Methodist, but never felt like I really belonged there because I simply could not believe much of what they believed. Tough for my parents. My dad was a minister. He was cool. It was my mom. was the Oh, oh. But anyway, I was unchurched for many years until a friend invited me to a UU congregation, and from that very first service, I felt like I had found a place that I belonged. If you were born a UU, your story may differ. Your story may be about growing up around other kids who taunted you because you were going to hell, which is why you're so determined now to make sure our children have a loving, supportive environment. Tell your story, and you will tell the good news of Unitarian Universalism. To borrow a phrase from my Quaker friends, let your life speak. Let us share our good news with all who would hear it so that we may add new stories to the narrative that is our faith, our history, and our future. May it always be so. And blessed be.